You can have all the diagrams. You can have all the notes. But I think you need also to just check in with what your intuition is telling you. Welcome to EIS Navigator, a podcast for UK venture capital. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Valuations crop up regularly in our podcast discussions, but today we're digging deep. We welcome back John Glencross of Calculus, who brings us experience of over two decades of investing to discuss what's happened recently, how that has infected investors, where we are now, and why you can have confidence in VCT valuations. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So welcome back to the podcast, John. Thank you, Brian. It, it, it was, it's always a joy to, to talk. Yes, I've been looking forward to this. Um, so regular listeners may know we had you back on back on episode 33, which I was checking out was two and a half years ago, which seems like ages. Gosh, it doesn't seem that long. But uh, I mean, there's awful lot has happened, I think, in the last two and a half years. Yes, definitely. And we're going to get onto some of that very shortly. But in case anyone wasn't listening way back then, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us how you became involved with Venture Capital? Well, my name is John Glencross. I am the CEO and co-founder of Calculus Capital. Uh, I co-founded Calculus over 20 years ago. Well, in fact, 1999. Uh, with Susan McDonald. Uh, we started in a basement in Notting Hill, um, the two of us, and um, we were both, we both previously worked for investment banks, large investment banks, and I think we got to the point where we wanted to really work for ourselves, do our own thing. Uh, so what we started by actually um, investing our own money in, uh, in in EIS opportunities, uh, and that that was it. that was actually in the late nineties, and that went well. And then we had people who approached us who said, "Would you would you take some money from us to invest?" And the whole thing basically grew from there. Um, and um, we uh, obviously went through the whole process of. Uh, approval, regulation, et cetera, et cetera. And then we launched the UK's first approved EIS fund uh, in 1999. Um, and starting out, I think that fund was £950,000 that we raised from other people. And we were rather disappointed because at the last moment, somebody was going to put in 50000 and we'd have hit the magic <laughs> one million, mm-hmm. decided not to. And so we were, we, but actually, um, it was that we, that's where we started. Um, we probably got about 175 million under management now, EIS and BCTs. But we uh, have actually had quite a spate or quite a run of, uh, of exits, and therefore, obviously, on the EIS side, uh, quite a lot of capital has been returned to investors from from investments in the last uh, 24, 30 months or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's interesting you're managing that. Uh, is, is that been, we say 24, 36 months, is that an er, more early in that or have you had any recent exits? Because I think people have been saying exits recently have been harder to get. I think, the, well, it, 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 it's interesting. I, if you go back to, to just come, when we were coming out of COVID, there was a lot of money chasing investments at all stages um, and cash obviously as we all re- we all remember money was, was cheap and it was a very um, very very fertile period for exits so we we, we had a, a run of exits with some very good multiples between three and six times the last, the last, really, the last big exit was about a year ago. I mean, what's happened in the more recent times is, and actually, it's interesting because it, you, you you see it both in terms of the valuations that 
we were seeing when we were investing, as well as the buoyancy of the exit market and people being active acquirers of companies, which had obviously had gone through our investment period. What you're seeing now is that I think it's a, it's a, it's a different time. Money is more expensive. Um, the world is a, the world is a different place. It's a relatively low growth scenario in most of the Western world. Um, but companies are not as active acquirers at the moment. So it is not. I mean, if one if one if one talks in a, in a in a straightforward and realistic way, and frankly, I mean, I think there's little point you know, in. In, in just sort of spinning a line, the last year or so has been a quiet time for exits. But conversely, those conditions have also helped to make it a more attractive time for investment. And if if you were to look at 2023, when really these conditions started to feed through, what we what what one saw there was was that the good companies that maybe still had cash didn't go looking to raise money because they would they were disappointed by the valuations that they were achieving. Mm-hmm. Eventually, of course, those companies do want to raise money for for for, for further growth. So what we what the profile that we saw through twenty twenty three and we saw it pr- primarily in both in tech and in healthcare, is that it was quite noticeable by, by the last quarter of 2023 that the, the good companies were coming back to market looking to raise funds and were accepting of the fact we were in a lower valuation environment. So it, 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 whereas, obviously, on the exit side, it's, it's made it a quiet period for exit. On the investment side, it's made it, I think, a more attractive scenario for for investment and for the longer term, the more patient capital investor, which, by definition, is 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 the sort of investment that companies like like us make. Um, and I think there's a sort of interesting points there about companies accepting, uh, you know, I mean, valuations as a whole have have come down. I think. Yeah, there was a change of emphasis in terms of, you know, I, I think two years ago, maybe three years ago, a lot of tech in particular is growth at any cost and who cares about cash burn? You know, it's, it's almost like burn as much cash as you can to get the growth. And you've had a lot of companies, anecdotally certainly, and you, you maybe see more than anecdotal, about, okay, the emphasis has changed, it's cash preservation, it's extend runway, but you can't extend runway forever. No, well, I, I think we were never, we never really were in that that sort of investment um, area of growth at any price. You know, keep throw cash at a situation. Never, I mean, that was never an environment that, that really we we were active in. But it it did feed through to the UK. It very much defined US venture capital. And because money was cheap, as it were, interest rates were very low, uh, and there was a certain sort of post-COVID buoyancy where a lot of money went looking for investment. We, I mean, our, our risk-return profile is we 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 always want we are, we've always looked particularly on the tech side. It's slightly different, obviously, on 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 healthcare and certainly on biotech. But we've always looked for companies that already have a uh, revenues. They may they're, they're unlikely to be profitable at the point we invest, but they will have revenues, and so their cash needs are less, which which meant that when they didn't like what they were seeing as valuations, they, they stayed out of the market. But you can only stay out of the market for so long if you want to grow. So, I mean, I, we're seeing more evidence that these companies are coming back on the tech side and on the, on, and on the healthcare side. And I think that whole sort of you know, scenario 
of growth at any cost is has faded from the market. I mean, there, you know, there are still bubbles. Yeah, AI is obviously the one where there seems to yeah. be no sort of money it, out there. Yeah, there are still bubbles, and there's an awful lot of money going into AI. And I fear that there's going to be a lot of destruction of capital. I mean, I think there's always there's always that sort of. Uh, I think I think um, as Alan Greenspan once called it irrational exuberance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, they're chasing. And if you look at the valuations of some of those companies, you know, they, 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 it's very hard to see how they're going to deliver a return to investors. No, I mean, I, I think one of the things of being in, being in, the, being in investment in, in venture capital for over 20 years is you, you avoid the hype. So uh, you won't see us. I mean, actually, a number of our companies will use AI in what they're doing, but they're doing they they are they are providing a service to somebody, and actually, a number uh, a number of our companies are using AI in in terms of developing that service, but they're not they're not pursuing new horizons in AI. They are they are users of it, and I think it's those that are putting money into what you might call the sort of you know, the more research-driven situations are going to see, uh, I fear we'll see um, a certain destruction of capital. Well, I, th- I think history shows, you know, from, from whether it's the US railroads and the sort of 19th century or dark fibre and, 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 and telecoms at the turn of the century, there's serially, there are bubbles where too much money goes in, it can't be deployed or it's over-deployed, and... Uh, there is a destruction of capital, but we're left economically with an infrastructure, so it's quite interesting. We are. I mean, I you know, there will good come of it, but not necessarily for the people who are providing the funds in those areas, uh, because I think valuations reach a level where it's 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 look, somebody will do well in some company, but. By and large, I think I think a number of those companies are going to struggle to deliver returns, or even to deliver their product to the market in time to justify raising more, more cash. So, as you said, you know, you can go back to tulip bubbles in whatever it was the seventeenth <laughs> century. Uh, the railroads. I mean, more recently, we had we had a huge amount of money going into fintech. Too mm. much, really. Right. Um, um in the market more recently of course we had blockchain now we have ai um, you know. for those that want to do chase it feel free <laughs> yeah so so there's all these little micro bubbles but i think your point that two or three years ago valuation is very high that was that was a market wide issue and i and i wonder how what sort of challenge that raises for you as a fund manager because you know, there was the old Chuck Prince quote about, you know, the music's playing, you've got to get up and dance. And you as a fund manager being given money to invest. Um, and he's kind of, if you don't invest it, then people kind of get upset. But at the same time, you must be one eye out there saying, well, actually, valuations are a bit high just now. You know, how do you manage that? I do think you have to have a realistic conversation with your investors. You know, some may, may take you on board, some may be unhappy. Um, our rate of investment, I think, through the first half of last year was 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 uh, slower than it is now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and was I that think, deliberate? Sort of, we think values are coming down. Let's wait and see. Or is that we're not seeing? Well, we, yes, we're not seeing attractive companies or companies that we find their business model, their business plans compelling at prices that we want to pay. Uh, and actually, you know, as, is, as is always the case, that often there is somebody who's willing to pay it. Uh, but quite often those companies went away and then, and then they've come back more recently. Um, so I think you do have to be realistic. And when, 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 when the quality of investments has, has, has maybe is, is not quite as stellar as at other times, you do have to hold back but um but i think 
as I said, I, there was a, there's been a discernible change since about last October or so. Um, and the good companies are coming back. We've been making, I think, some very interesting investments. I'm sure we'll talk about them. And we have, I think, about three likely to complete um, within the next two or three weeks that we've been working on really for the last three or four months. And our KI fund, we, we launched a KI fund, a knowledge intensive fund uh, last year, and we are on track for that to be invested within a 12 month period, which I think is, is probably a stronger performance in terms of investment than some of our KI peers, but actually it's been it's been rather back end loaded. You didn't see much for the first few months, and then you're seeing quite a quite a flurry of activity in in the last from since you know end of last year in, into the first quarter of this year. One thing that I treat about a little bit is is down rounds because I don't know how to what extent you're seeing down rounds in good companies because. We've obviously seen valuations in some sectors come off a long way, half or whatever. But at the same time, good companies are also growing. And we wonder what extent good companies are avoiding down rounds or to what extent you're seeing down rounds. Because there seems to be the psychology around them, which I, th- I think is different from, you know, if you were a dispassionate corporate advisor or whatever, you might have a different view. But, you know, so people's, people don't like them. Well, you know, no entrepreneur is going to like a down round. That's, I mean, I think that's 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 probably understandable. Yeah. Look, when a when a company comes for funding, one has to take a view on value, mm-hmm. and really, that can't be influenced by what has been paid in the past. Now, if a, you know, if, a, if a management team, if an entrepreneur doesn't want to accept that, well, fine. You know, that, 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 that's really life in the big city. Um, we, are seeing, we, we are seeing where we are coming into an investment at what is a lower valuation than they had raised money from in the past, primarily when they were maybe in an earlier stage and they were raising money from the private investor business angel. I mean, sadly, those those communities of investors have, I think, overvalued, overpaid. And then when you know a, a fund like us comes in, and we are often the first institutional round, as it were, um, they're they're finding that they're having to accept a down round um, or a lower valuation or whatever one calls it. One can feel for them, but one has to do the best for one's investors. One can't say, okay, well, mm-hmm. you know, because you because you overpaid, we'll 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 accept that. There's another. I mean, there's another the other way of approaching this, which is, um, and. We use them, and, 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 and a lot of our peer, peers use them, which is preferential returns. So what are those? Well, the preferential return is, for example, if we put $2 million in, mm-hmm. we, if, when that company, when the, an, an exit is eventually achieved, we will, we will have first call on the money to repay our $2 million. Uh, and then we'll, you know, and then the, you know, we will, everybody will benefit. Now that is, without getting too complicated, and I, I don't want to get too much into, you know, equations on the blackboard, as it were. That is a way of, of, of going some way to bridging where earlier rounds were and where we are. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, you know, it sounds quite complicated. It's really just a way that if you build in a, an element of preferential return. You can maintain maybe a valuation that other people are are, are happy with, uh, whilst ensuring that the level of return from the situation is what we would think is appropriate for the risk return profile. Yeah, and certainly I've heard a lot of noise. I don't know to what extent it is noise or reality in terms of particularly non EIS investors 
when they you know when they do the preference stacks and they've got these liquidation preferences, which I say we're not, I'm not we're not going to get equated on, but the terms of which are coming out seem to be a lot more onerous than they were maybe two or three years ago. I think that's true. I mean, I I don't think I mean I you know our we our pattern or our, or our formula for doing this I think is 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 largely it's it's largely unchanged. Where you are raising money down the line from investors who are not ta- using tax advantage funds, and therefore you know can play a little more sort of aggressively within within um, in terms of what they're doing. You do see situations where they do try to impose terms on pre- earlier investors that are, you know, that, that build in preferential returns and other quite sort of strict and demanding requirements. You know, it's one of the sad things about the, the so-called scale-up, that some of that scale-up money comes at quite onerous cost. It's one of the challenges for the UK as a whole. And I, I was listening to a government minister talking last night about the challenges of scale-up. We do have an issue there. We, by and large, it's interesting because in some of the rounds that we are now involved in or, or leading are pretty large, and therefore we, we're not we we don't have to access that money. I mean, we we the last investment we did uh, was a company called Laverock, which is um, um, a biotech. It's in fact it is interesting because it's a management team that we backed about six, seven years ago, that exited about five years ago, uh, sorry, we exited about two years ago um, to Bayer, ultimately to Bayer, which uh, Bayer, I'm never quite sure how one pronounces it, uh, the, the, big, the, big, the big European pharma. And that management team came back with a new company and we've just backed that and that round was 13 and a half million which we i mean it's a, we led a syndicate to do that which included our peer group of eis and vct investors plus a big farmer like eli Lilly. now the great thing about having a big farmer like eli Lilly involved is they look at an awful lot of science out there and it, you know it, 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 it's it's further validation of the science but you can see, I mean, if you, we're, we're leading a round of 13 and a half million of tax advantage, EIS, VCT plus non-tax advantage. In that situation, the non-tax advantage money will fall in line with mm-hmm. the rest of us. Yeah. Presumably the risk, though, is, yeah. I mean, you would expect that in a single round, but the risk might be in a, the next round somebody comes in and says, right, oh, well, these like, they, you, you've got this um, sort of liquidation preference, but someone else comes in later around if money's tight and sort of says, we're coming later, therefore the early investors will have to swallow something. It can happen. Um, it can happen in this country. Um, I think basically at that point where you're looking for that larger amount of money, which in biotech, you might be up there looking for 30 million or something like that in tech, you know, 20, 30, whatever million. Um, I mean, we're an, we're, we're an investor. We manage people's money. Our preference is if we can achieve a good exit at that point, we'll exit. Mm-hmm. Now, you could say, but is that best for UK PLC? Possibly not, but you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we have to serve our investors. And if I were to take the example in the interesting Laverock of the previous company, which is Symprotics, which we actually did achieve a return of, I think, five and a half times. Originally, we went out to seek scale up capital for that company to allow it to continue to grow of about 40 million. And scale up capital in this country is still an issue. And the terms we got offered were punitive. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that we instigated. It was in conjunction with management. None of us found that attractive. So we said, well, we've made a lot of progress. 
we're in a very attractive part of the market, which was gene therapy. We went out to see what the biomarket was, and we had an offer from a subsidiary of Bayer at a very attractive price, and we exited a very attractive price. We're investors. Uh, I would love to see more scale-up money available at, you know, on t- on, attra- on 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 attractive terms. Um, and maybe everybody talked about all this money that will come from the big pension funds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think 50 billion is the initial estimate. You know, sensibly, if that's organized um, properly, that the, the place for that to go would be into the availability of scale-up capital. So that some of our best companies don't get don't end up getting sold, uh, often to foreign buyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is certainly I saw a headline this morning, um, sort of saying that I think there were six unicorns created in the UK last year, which is down, and sort of lamenting that. And I know some of that's a valuation issue that your know, valuations aren't higher, but I think it's it's a point that we're very good at gener- in the UK. I think at generating small companies. Yeah, getting that, you know, not even unicorn, you know, decacorn. We don't get decacorns. Well, I mean, there's there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the size of our market is not the same as the yeah. US. Yeah, that yeah. is handed out. The other is, um, I mean, if we you know people sometimes say to me, "What's a unicorn?" And I say it's a valuation aberration. <laughs> uh, most, I mean, if you look at the US, most unicorns are now not unicorns. Uh, I mean, and things like the so-called Magnificent Seven, which we now hear about all the time, which make up something like 40% of the S&P in the US, which is mm-hmm. staggering, about 13 trillion. You know, um, Alphabet, Google as was, Meta, formerly called Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Nvidia. Netflix, NVIDIA, yeah. Uh, I mean, in that seven is... Um, Tesla, although maybe that's not, it's going to be the magnificent six soon. <laughs> that's not the reality of life for most companies in the tech sectors. There are companies where genuinely justify valuation in, in the billions uh, at a relatively early stage, but a lot of it is again, it's it's it's. I think it, it was a valuation aberration. You have to look, what do these companies do? What is the market for, for, for what they're going to do? What's their chances of taking a good part of that market? You know, if you, if you, if you focus on those questions, you then come back to, so what's, you know, what's the sensible valuation? Now, if we were to build unicorns, it'd be great. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to build unicorns because we have a relatively early-stage company that's just got a, you know, a, a rather silly valuation attached to it. Because I don't think that's in anybody's anybody's benefit but I, I, I think there's definitely psychology and this is probably more in the us than the uk to be fair where if you're investing in a company and the prospect the prospect of it becoming a unicorn is a real one and and we can debate about how real that really is um then the valuation entry doesn't matter that much but it sounds like you know if, if you're in one of the 99 you know or 99.9% of companies that aren't going to become unicorns, that sort of says valuation really matter, you know, really has to matter then. You have to work on the basis of the investor valuation. The valuation that you invest that matters. Mm-hmm. And regardless of you know, the, the, where, the, the, the ups and downs of markets, the price that you invest at will be a significant determinant of what your returns are. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you should never move away from the discipline of essentially only paying what you feel a company is truly worth at that stage. Mm-hmm. And yes, if, if you know, if, 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 if something is too good to be true, then it probably <laughs> is not true. <laughs> Yes, and we we've had. I mean, we we've had uh, last year um, entrepreneurs, investors come in and with with views about what their businesses are worth, mm-hmm. which is sort of taken from what they're hearing elsewhere. But you know, you have to look. What's your business model? 
what's your what's the probabilities of you successfully rolling out that business model what's the market in which you're competing what's the competition in that market what's the chances of you taking a meaningful share of that market you you have to come back to some very very sound mm-hmm. basic business principles in investing and i think let you know let the rest sort of pass you by mm-hmm. yeah and I, and, I, and i think the challenge for some founders is you can imagine as if they you know if they're down at the golf club or wherever or the, the local network or whatever and they found, and they know 10 people have raised money they're probably going to say you know the one with the best valuation oh i'm as good as he is or she is therefore i should be valued the same as the top valuation which isn't necessarily always the case. Well, uh, yeah, there's no there's no entrepreneur who ever thought he had a mediocre company. <laughs> you know, and and it, yeah. it, they shouldn't. I mean, you know, unless you're mm-hmm. passionate about what you what you do. Yeah. But it's up to us as a rational investor to find our way through all that. So one of the challenges I think at the moment not is not an not just on the transaction side, which is is really interesting, but also portfolio valuation. And I, and I know this is this is something that people debate a lot about in probably more applying to VCTs and EIS, where to what extent do valuations lag the reality in that, you know, you, we've, we've spoken about companies taking the time, next round comes. Um, if the down round comes, it's going to take a little bit of time. Do you think that VCTs do lag the market in valuation? If so, to what extent? When you lag, you mean that they value below the market, or um... no? I think I think I think that they lag movement. So if if the market's oh, coming down, they're slow to adjust. They're slow to adjust. They're yeah. slow to adjust. Yeah. The sort of money that VCTs invest, we have VCTs, EIS oh. invest, long term you're not going to adjust that on a monthly basis because look, the way the way that a company a company makes progress you can't you can't say oh well you know this month we can mark it up whatever or mark it down so inevitably you're going to value three months six months uh, that possibly that would like that well clearly that lags behind um, the the quoted markets where obviously on a on a minute by minute basis, valuations are being adjusted as um, as shares trade hands. Um, I don't think on the BCT side, by and large, that valuations are unrealistic. I mean, the only valuation that matters at the end of the day is the exit price you get. But we all have to make a as as professional a job as we can of valuing companies in our portfolio, unquoted companies in our portfolio during the the the, the, the period in which we are working with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and this is one of the reasons why I highlight VCTs over EIS because EIS, it, it, in a sense, it doesn't matter the interim valuation because that's all you get. But VCTs, there are people transacting VCT shares with a portfolio of existing shares on an existing value. I mean, on a on a portfolio basis, I mean, it's unrealistic for unquoted companies to be adjusted on a sort of you know daily basis or weekly yeah, basis yeah. or even, even if one's practical a monthly basis. Uh-huh. I and if you take a portfolio, most most BCTs will obviously have you know forty, fifty, a hundred companies in the portfolio. I my my feeling is that certainly for BCTs, the Carrying values of the portfolio are, probably, are not out of line with probably market values for the portfolio mm-hmm. as well. Inevitably, within a portfolio, you might there, there will be some that might be a little overvalued, some that might be a little undervalued. Not not consciously, but that's just the nature of, of the whole process of, of valuing unquoted companies. You have to remember as well that VCTs are subject to audit, and auditors are get. You know, I can tell you, going through this process, auditors get ever more uh, scrupulous, or in, in their in their attention to to detail and 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 their their questioning about valuations and the basis for valuations, and that's obviously 
that's that's a good thing because basically the industry requires integrity in the whole process. Yeah. On the EIS side, I mean, it does matter to an extent because EIS managers quote to the market what their what their unquoted portfolio returns are, and. My, I mean, the interesting thing is, if I look at the EIS market, which is maybe less subject to audit scrutiny than than, um, than the VCT market, the interesting observation I would make is a lot of EIS providers, or not, you know, and some EIS providers are showing or putting forward returns on their unquoted portfolios which seems you know, materially out of line with what they're actually achieving in terms of ultimate exits. In some cases, I do think there might be a few porkies being told. Well, I, th- I think there's some methodologies where I, laziness might be a bit harsh, but uh, I think there are people who are just saying, well, exit matters. We'll just use last value, last transaction price regardless. And I think there's a little bit of that. So inevitably, when prices are falling, you've got kind of stale prices, a little stale valuations, a little bit. Well, you, you look, you have to because it, it, it's the rules. It's the IPO, you know, the International Private Equity Valuation Rules, uh, as adopted in the UK. You have to do the best you can to give a valuation at the current time of an investment. And you can't say, well, we valued it wherever, you know, the last round, which might be 24 months, 36 months ago. Um, you And you, I don't think that would be good for the market if you did operate on that basis. And I mean, if I think back to you know, the couple of investments that, I mean, the very last investment that we exited um, on the tech side, which was a, a, a travel tech company called Avio, which we achieved about five and a half times again. That only ever had one round of investment. And mm. I mean, if we'd carried it last price paid right to the end, we'd have had a somewhat materially inaccurate mm-hmm. statement yeah. of value. Yeah. So you, I mean, it's right that everybody does have to, as the rules require, value on a regular basis. I feel that some of the valuations in, the, in EIS portfolios are maybe a little bit optimistic mm-hmm. uh, because when I look at what they those providers are achieving in terms of their actual exits they don't appear to be in line with that mm-hmm. and therefore you say well you know why is that what I would say is that actually our exits returns well we, we, we've had a lot of exits our exit yeah. returns yeah, you you might even have had the most in the market. I think for our size, yes. For our size, yes. Um, you know, obviously, if you're a bigger fund, uh, you, you you might have more in total. But our exits, our actual our exits returns are are basically in line with our carrying values of our portfolios, which suggests that we are we are we are materially in line. With uh, in terms of realism of valuations, of course, at the end of the day, as I said, the only valuation that will matter is what is what your exit value is. But our exit values are are generally well, they are in line with our carrying values. Not not because that's the basis we work on, but because when we're doing our valuations, we try to be as very as professional as we can. Uh-huh. Um, we, I mean, I think we're clearly coming up with valuations which are realistic in terms of carrying values at that point in time. Uh-huh. And it, what I, I mean, observation I would make is if you look at some peer group in the EIS arena, where um, which is less subject to say audit scrutiny than the VCT uh-huh. market. It's interesting when you see people claiming on their unquoted portfolios returns, which are materially, materially higher than the best VCTs in the world are achieving on their portfolios. Mm. And you can actually look at this because because of um, the rules that 
um, institutions, you know, like pension funds and endowment, university endowments, have to publish their returns and the performance of their mm-hmm. investment. You can actually look and find out what the best venture capital companies in the world are achieving. And therefore, slightly tongue-in-cheek, it's interesting when I see an EIS provider that is showing a return material above you know, the best in the world on their unquoted portfolio. But, you know, this is, I mean, this is for um, advisors and, and um, investors, really, to, you know, it's for them to, to consider. One of the questions sort of relates to that is, is what's the kind of band of uncertainty or reasonable uncertainty, would you say? Because, you know, value unquote companies has an element of art as well as science. You know, we know that some VCTs have put slightly different valuations on companies. Usually it's not too far apart. 5%, 10%, that, that wouldn't worry me. 50% probably would worry me. I mean, how do you see sort of what would be a reasonable sort of band? Well, we, I mean, our approach to valuation, and you know, it is both an art and a science of unquoted, of unquoted companies. I mean, obviously, quoted companies, and we, we have some aim company, you just you take the aim bid price. Yeah. But our approach to valuation of unquoted companies, we would, we would approach it on a num- looking at a number of different metrics and a number of different methodologies. And we look for consistency in terms of where those results are coming out. Okay. And the metrics will differ depending on the industry. I mean, a tech company which has got revenues, one of the metrics, for example, would be ARR, average run rate of revenues. I.e., yeah. How are your revenues growing over time? Um, obviously, if you have a biotech which is more research driven i mean it's a different set of metrics but we will we will approach valuation on a a number of using a number of different metrics and from a number of different directions and we look for consistency of where those results are coming out Uh and if our results are essentially all over the place then we have a question about why is that and one has to go back and, and 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 reconsider we have something which we um colloquially called the football pitch, which is we put all, we, we map all these out on a, on a graph and we look to see where, where, you know, what the consistency is between the various methodologies. If I'm honest, it's imperfect, but there is no perfect way. I don't think there is a perfect methodology in this market, which is... If you look at a portfolio as a whole, and all our clients have a portfolio, they don't have an investment. And it would be silly to, to, to claim otherwise. There will probably be some which are a bit overvalued, some are a bit undervalued, not because we are not professional, but because you know, it's an imperfect, uh, imperfect science. On a portfolio basis, you're probably about there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think therefore it's important, and obviously I think anybody who invests in this area who isn't investing on a portfolio basis I, you know, with with somebody who is who is who is who is building a portfolio for them on a portfolio basis, your your valuations are probably reasonable in their accuracy. And then the litmus test is obviously, well, how do they sh- how do they compare with what you're actually achieving when it comes to exits? And as I said, we have we have a, a good level of consistency on that on, on that front. Yes, yes, and uh, having looked at your figures, I can confirm in the better perspective that is true. Well, thank you. <laughs> so we've spoken a little bit about where valuations have sort of gone in, in, over the last sort of two or three years. There is a general sort of sense of people want to call the bottom of that movement. Do you think we've kind of reached the bottom of the valuation cycle yet, or is it too early to tell? I think it's probably a little early to tell um i mean if you look at 2024 we've got low growth environment in most western economies Mm -hmm. we have interest rates that have risen quite markedly we have war in eastern europe 
and in the Middle East. So you have a volatile political situation, you have a low growth e economic situation. So whether it's the bottom of the market, I don't know. I think one of the things that will be a key determinant is obviously sentiment. And one of the key factors in driving sentiment, I think, is when you look at the various central banks, the Bank of, the Bank of England, the Fed particularly, the European Central Bank, it's the message that's coming out for them in terms of the direction of travel of interest rates. I think when the message changes, sentiment changes, and I think you will start to see a more optimistic approach to you know, the future. At the moment, we're sort of somewhere, the message has stopped being rising interest rates, but it hasn't, hasn't actually really changed to say there will be interest rate cuts. And actually, I, I think it, it seems to me unlikely that inflation in general is going to just fall easily um, for that last that last element, and I think it, it, I think it's over optimistic to think that it, um, interest rates are going to fall to where they have been in the, in the last ten years. But I don't think they need to fall to that level. I mean, you know, we, many of us remember when interest rates were were not one one and a half percent, whatever. I don't think they need to fall to that level. But I think these the the message coming out from central banks about the direction of travel have quite an effect on sentiment. So, as I said, in terms of investment, and you know, I, I completely understand that any, anybody listening to, to us talking will say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> let, let, let me preface what I'm going to say. I mean, I completely understand that, some, that somebody would say he would say that, wouldn't he? But this is actually quite an attractive time to be investing for the long-term patient investor, and by definition, that is EIS and VCT, because the valuations that we are seeing now are more attractive. Whether they fall that little bit further or not, I don't know. I think it's only it's only marginal falls further, and we all we all know that um, you know that old saying about don't chase the last ten percent or the you know, um, and I think. So you they think we're close to the bottom, even if we're not there yet? We think we're somewhere close to the bottom. Um, and, but for the moment, particularly if the good companies are coming back to raise money and valuations are more attractive than they have been in the past, I think it's a good time to be investing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not such a great scenario for exits in the short term. But by definition... EIS and VCT money is long-term capital. I mean, nobody should invest in, in EIS or VCT who doesn't have at least a five. Who doesn't have a five-year horizon? I, I I think even longer. I keep thinking of the the. the it's almost a cliche, but uh, about how inventor investing fortunes are made in the downturns by investing, but only reaped in the upturns. And you, you know, you have you have to be patient. Absolutely. So hopefully there's lots more patients out there. Um, what we'd like to do now is turn to our favourite questions. So okay. you eliminated a couple last time, so we won't repeat those, but uh, we'll, okay. we'll throw these at you. What was the most, sorry, what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made? Uh, I think I, I mentioned it earlier with Laverock, which where we led... A uh, thirteen and a half million round of VCT, EIS, and other money from Big Pharma in investment in in Laverock, which was the second time we we backed that management. We had a successful exit with them about about three years ago, called Synchronics, and they have technologies that regulate. Um, the operation of genes in terms of being able to um, fine-tune how active they are, which is important in targeting treatments for things like solid cancers. Okay. So it's a management team we've backed before, 
um, and I think it's a very, you know, it's a very promising area of the healthcare market. Um, you know, so much of future treatment will be around being able to basically um, fine tune, regulate the operation of genes. Uh, I think I think it's uh, it's a very it's very it's a really interesting investment with a management team that we already knew. We led we led it. It's quite a large round. There was an element of herding cats in trying to get them all to the finish line. <laughs> I have to I have to commend the team here for doing a fantastic mm-hmm. job. Well, we'll give them a pat on the back. Um, so tell us about time you failed and what you learned from it. Well, it, we. It, it wouldn't be venture capital if you didn't have failures, uh, but you still beat yourself up. I think it's, you know, when we, we talked about biotech, we've talked about tech, we, you know, the various areas that we invest in. Management's still key. Management is still important. Mm-hmm. And because management has to make it happen. And I think where we failed we've maybe misread management's ability to deliver on their business plan mm-hmm. and you know, to deliver on it in time and um, in a competitive market. So, I mean, I think we do, we talk about science, we talk about tech, but we do actually spend a lot of time of trying to evaluate management which is why it's obviously a good situation where you invest again with a team that you've invested with before because you know them. But, I mean, I can think of an investment which we thought was an attractive tech investment a few months back where we pulled out because we had not reservations about the technology but, but reservations about the management team's ability to deliver on it. So I think as it, it wouldn't be venture capital if we didn't have failures. You try to learn from them. I think normally it's the ability of management to deliver on their business plan in a competitive market, in markets which do change over time and where you do have to ride the occasional you know, uh, wind coming at you. So the EIS and the VCT industry that we work in is great in many ways, but it's far from perfect. Is there anything out there you would like to change about it? Oh, well, if I sat down and wrote the, wrote the rules, um, <laughs> well, that's never going to happen. Um, if we come back to something I alluded to earlier, I think in the EIS market, I would like to, I'd like to see greater honesty in some of the claims. You know, for example, I, I was aware of, of, a, of a fund which launched recently, which I think said it was targeting 10 times returns. So, you know, what alchemy methodology have you found to turn lead into gold? Because if you're doing 10 times returns, you will be the world's best venture capital company. Uh, And, you know, I find that a rather unconvincing claim on their part. So I would say I'd like to see more realism in the EIS market. I'd like to see more grown-up communication on the VCT side and on EIS, uh, there are a number of rules that HMRC has imposed for various reasons, which they feel there is potentially some 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 loophole, which I think are are unhelpful to the development of companies. So, I, if I were to write the rule, rewrite the rules, I wouldn't change them. Dramatically, I would just remove some of these um, quirks that have been put in, which frankly can hold back company development at times. So do you have any example of those? Well, um, the seven-year rule, if you've heard mm. about that, seven-year yes. rule. Believe it or not, you know, there is a, there is a, there is a belief in, 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 in government that if a company is going to succeed, it does it within 24 months. <laughs> but whatever they're smoking, share it with the rest of us. But uh, you know, com- companies can actually quite often take a long time. There's plenty of ten-year overnight successes. Yes, and you know they they 
some, th- those companies are often as deserving of um, of investment as, as others. So, I mean, it's rules like that. It's rules about uh, the you know how much capital you have to. I mean, how much capital you have to still have on your balance sheet at the point you go out to raise funds. There's another rule about if you want to buy in a technology or a science that's complementary to what you're doing, it can be a bit of a minefield that can potentially jeopardize your, 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 your eligibility. And things like joint ventures. Sometimes joint ventures are, are a very sensible thing for a company to do to develop a certain activity. Yeah, there are, I feel, rules that are unnecessary in some of these areas. And they can hold back growth and development. Well, maybe we'll get some of those sort of the next phase of changes. Well, I think, I think, I think, you know, the more voices that, that tell government to, uh, to look at these things, the better. Yeah, absolutely. So any listeners who got a spare weekend and want to write a letter, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. So, as regular listeners know, I'm an avid reader and always out for ideas. Are there any books out there you like and would recommend? Oh my God! Um, I look. I always have at least three books on the go. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, it's and then about seven by the side of the bed, and I probably read more than I would watch TV. Um, I just read a lovely book about writers who spent a formative part of their time in the south of France. It's a very loose way of linking a lot of writers together. I think it was called something like Sunshine and Shadows, but it's, a, it's it talked about the stories of a number of different writers, Scott Fitzgerald, Aldous Huxley, Somerset Maugham, Catherine Mansfield, all about their, their, their time in the south of France, essentially in the first part of the 20th century. It, yeah, it's a loose thread to link them all together, but it was a, lo- it was a lovely book. Something, a book I read recently, a very small book called The Four Agreements by uh, an author called um, Miguel Ruiz. Mm. It's a very short book, and it's really about approach to, to life and, you know, the, the tenets by which you, you, where you live your life, which I thought made some interesting points and asked some interesting questions. I got given for Christmas, and I will start it soon, Simon Heffer's new book, Sing as we go, which is about the UK between the wars, which is obviously a time of very great creativity, but social upheaval, political upheaval, economic upheaval, and obviously ultimately, you know, led led to war. So I think um, I, that that's a book that is by my bed, waiting to be started. Mm-hmm. Those all sound very interesting. We shall post links to show notes as well, so people are interested. So what do you wish you knew when you started Venture Capital that you know now? Something I wish I'd be more aware of then would be trust your intuition more when you're looking at something. Mm-hmm. You know, despite the analysis, the logic, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. I suppose the other one which comes to mind, which is not original, but I think it, I think it was Warren Buffett said, um, be fearful when others are bold and be bold when others are fearful. Mm-hmm. I think maybe one gets to appreciate both of those more the the older one gets and the more experienced one one has. Yeah, yeah. I think the second one's experience might make that a little bit easier because when you've seen cycles, you have uh, a bit more confidence this too shall pass kind of thing. And, and, and the downturn will be followed by an upturn. Um, but I, I, I simply for your first one as well, as someone who has a tendency probably to over-intellectualize at times. Um. Well, you can you can have all the spreadsheets, you can have all the analysis, um, you can have all the diagrams, you can have all the notes, but I think you know you, you need also to just check in with what your intuition is telling you. So, if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Calculus, where should they go? Well, uh, I would say our website is, I think. Uh, a, a good website, informative, and we have a we have a really good investor relations team led by Madeline Ingram and Francesca Reno, um, and we're always happy to talk. 
Right. Well, we'll post links to those in the show notes. Thank you very much for coming on again, again today, John. I really enjoyed chatting to you again. It's been lovely, Brian. And um, I wish you well. And maybe this is the last time I say Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year to you too. I hope you enjoyed our discussion with John. As one of the longer standing investors in this space, he brings a perspective that few can match. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonycode.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on all podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. If you liked what you hear, then please tell a friend or a colleague or give us a review on your favorite podcast app. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonycode.com. Thanks for listening and we'll be back in two weeks time.